Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. David Miliband is the president of the International Rescue Committee. We sat down at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June to discuss the immigration crisis at the U.S. southern border. But you can hear the former British foreign affairs minister put our crisis into a global context right now. David Miliband, thank you very much for being on the podcast here at Aspen at the Ideas Festival. Thank you, Jonathan. It's really, really good to be on the show. So I would love to get your perspective as the president of the International Rescue Committee. Um, What's happening on the U.S. southern border? Uh, We're calling it a crisis here. From your perspective, having your bird's eye view of crises like this around the world, where does this fit in? So I think there's two things that it's really important for people to understand. First of all, at the border, people uh, from mainly El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras uh, are exercising their right to claim asylum in the U.S., They're not, quote-unquote, illegal. Uh, It's a right under international law. The U.S. is a signatory uh, through the 1967 protocol to the uh, U.N. Convention on Refugees uh, to give people the right to claim uh, asylum if they feel that they are are not safe uh, at home. And that's the first thing that's going on. There's then a whole set of policy responses that I'm sure we're going to talk about. Uh, Secondly, and very importantly, I I always have a wry smile when I hear Americans and Europeans talking about a refugee quote-unquote crisis, because the truth is that America has 1% of the world's refugees, Europe has 7 or 8% of the world's refugees, the vast bulk of the world's refugees are in poor and lower middle-income countries, 700,000 Rohingya driven into Bangladesh in the last eight months. From Burma. From Burma, from Myanmar. Myanmar. Uh, A million South Sudanese flowing into Uganda. Uh, The uh, uh, one and a half uh, million uh, Venezuelans fleeing the country in the last six to eight weeks, 600,000 of them in Colombia. It's not the US and Europe that are bearing the greatest share of the quote-unquote burden. Uh, 85, 86% of the world's refugees are in poor countries. And of course, there are also 40 million internally displaced in countries that are uh, the mercy of civil wars, Syria being a prime example where there are seven and a half million internally displaced. So the second thing that's going on is that there's a political crisis, but actually there's no reason for there to be a policy crisis. Hmm. And so then, you know, you know Americans, <laughs> we are a very myopic people. All those stats and things that, that you just mentioned, I bet most Americans don't even know, um, hadn't even considered. For them, what's happening on the southern border, the U.S. southern border with Mexico, where we have a situation where, as you just talked about, people who are migrating from Central America, a harrowing journey from their from their home countries through Mexico to get over the border in the United States is something that has captured um, the American imagination, not least because the president of the United States has a zero tolerance policy that is separating children from their families. Well, let's just understand the zero tolerance, quote unquote, is to say that anyone who crosses the border should be considered an illegal immigrant, even if they're exercising legal rights to claim asylum. That's separate from the policy decision to separate children from their families. Now, for us, as an inter- for the International Rescue Committee, as a, as a global humanitarian organization, quite a bit of our work around the world is reuniting families, is bringing together uh, children with their parents when they're separated, fleeing from war. 
So to be in mm. a, and, and that's often funded by the US government, which is exactly the right thing to do. So the idea that at home there is disunification of families when abroad we're sponsoring the reunification of families shows you how far the agenda has shifted. Um, as you just said, people who are exercising their legal right to, to seek asylum in the United States are still being considered, quote unquote, illegal um, as, as a policy decision. What does it mean when you have the United States basically thumbing its nose at the rule of law and denying denying legal rights that have one their legal rights but two have always been understood especially that the united states would honor and respect those laws well obviously the great danger is that ne'er-do-well leaders around the world are given a green light to pursue similar policies to return refugees mm-hmm. when it's not safe to split families and the rest of it and uh, America, like any country, has successes and failures. It makes mistakes as well as gets things right. But it has set itself to a high standard, and it set itself to especially high standards as the world's leading immigrant nation, uh, a country founded by immigrants uh, and a country that is has gained enormous strength from refugees and immigrants who have uh, come here. And it is a grievous blow to the global standards that need to be enhanced, not reduced, to see the U.S., going back on the long-standing commitments that it's made to due process, uh, to family unification, uh, to treating uh, refugees who are seeking sanctuary as people who need to be treated with respect and with uh, love in many cases, rather than with scorn. Does it tr- does it trouble you as a leader of an organization and also as a former um, uh, foreign secretary uh, for the UK to see the United States, uh, the president of the United States, act in this manner? Well, I think that uh, all of us have got to recognize that we're living in a much more connected world where the danger is that divisions between people overwhelm that those connections that are being built. And the US, uh, along with other Western countries, has been a standard bearer for the greater connection that exists not just in markets but between people and between institutions uh, over the last 70 years. Remember John Kennedy went to Philadelphia in 1962 on July the 4th and issued what he called the Declaration of Interdependence. He said we're living in an interdependent world where cooperation between countries and between peoples is the only way to solve our common problems. And so America isn't held to a higher standard than Germany or Britain or other countries, but it does set high standards for itself by virtue of its history. And that's why I think there is uh, global attention on the world's leading superpower and the way in which it deals with some of the most vulnerable people in the world. And remember, this is a situation where there are more or less half as many people uh, fleeing from South and Central America than there were 30 years ago. Hmm. Uh, This is a situation uh, where the... Uh, global refugee crisis provides a magnification of the challenges, but where poorer countries around the world are actually showing the way in which you can treat people with humanity, you can screen cases, you can address uh, the uh, distinction between economic migrants and those who are fleeing from uh, persecution. Sometimes there are grey areas. Uh, But I I think it's really uh, has significant long-term consequences, above all for the people caught up in it, the young children especially caught up in it. Remember, there are still 2,000 kids who are separated from their parents, some of whom have been sent 
back deported mm, the parents that, yeah the mm -hmm. parents to the countries they came from so how there's there's a massive job to do to bring them together but there's also a wider uh, context to this which is that one in every 110 people on the planet is now displaced from their home by conflict or persecution uh, but that means 109 out of 110 of us are not displaced from our homes by conflict and persecution. And the question is, are those people who are at the worst the, the worst end of the abuse of power, are they to be objects of scorn or are they to be objects of help, subjects of help? And that's why I think there is a moral question for all of us in in asking what is to be done to support these people. Are they are we to turn our backs on them or not? Because to say that they are uh, illegal and that they should be objects of scorn seems to me to be uh, to learn the worst lessons of history. Uh, you know, you you will get no argument from me on that, and that's what for me as an American, what's so troubling about what's happening on the on the southern border, uh, particularly one, it's the separation of families, and two, um, the thing that made Rachel Maddow cry uh, on live television, reading that the United States had set up three quote unquote uh, tender care shelters, which were really baby jails. Um, I want you to, uh, David, to Can talk. Can I just say something else? Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I don't want to uh, interrupt you, but the, or I did interrupt you, so I apologize for interrupting <laughs> you, but here's the point. Uh, what's going on is a dehumanization, and that's happening for a number of reasons. Part of it is that the scale of the refugee crisis, more or less 28 and a half million people who are either refugees or, or asylum seekers, 40 million internally displaced, that's being used as an excuse to say that this problem is so big, we're just going to treat these people as a quote-unquote flood, we're going to rob them of their humanity, and we're not going to be, allow them to exercise uh, their humanity or be treated uh, with humanity. And that is a great danger, because the greatest uh, foe that we face as an international aid organization is the idea that however much we spend on this, we can't make a difference. Hmm. My point, and if I can get one point across in this uh, podcast, is that actually there are lessons around the world about how to manage the flow of people in a way that is humane, in a way that is secure, in a way that is efficient, in a way that actually brings benefit to the societies. You can't solve the refugee crisis until you have peacemaking and peace building of a wholly different kind than we have at the moment. Uh, where are the all-night sessions of the UN Security Council on the conflict in Yemen, the conflict in South Sudan, the long-standing uh, Afghan trauma? But in the absence of that, there are ways to deal with the symptoms of this diplomatic and political uh, failure. And it's just wrong to say that this is an unmanageable crisis. This is out of control. These are flows of people that can't be dealt with. Well, then give me then give me three. N uh, number one, uh, every uh, case needs to be processed fast and efficiently so that those who are refugees can be given refugee status and those who aren't can be returned home. Germany is now processing cases within eight to ten weeks, even though one and a half million people arrived in Germany in 2015, uh, 2016. Uh, secondly, it's a global scandal that 2% of the humanitarian budget goes on education, even mm -hmm. though half of the displaced people are children. So we're shortchanging their future and we're shortchanging our own future. Thirdly, and absolutely critically, the poor and lower middle income countries that are hosting refugees, countries like Uganda, Ethiopia, Kenya, but also Lebanon and Jordan, Jordan the second closest ally of the United States in the Middle East, those countries are delivering a global benefit. They're hosting refugees on all of our behalfs. They need a massive infusion 
of economic support from the World Bank, from the International Monetary Fund, not just from humanitarian aid, so that instead of racking up big debts for hosting refugees, instead of racking up pressure on their resources, they're actually given the support to allow them to host these refugees and allow these refugees to become contributors to the societies in which they've landed, to actually work. Because the one country that's really shown the way, Uganda, which allows refugees to work, it gets them off humanitarian aid. Hmm. It's actually a win-win. So then for the the Trump administration, which is dealing with what it has been branding and what we've all been talking about in, in the States as a, a crisis, on your first point of every case, every um, asylum case, every um, immigrant case being processed efficiently, fast, it seems as though this particular, the quote-unquote zero tolerance policy was instituted and there was no sort of front end organization to like, well, what happens when you start taking children from their from their families? What are the processes not only for tracking those children, but for also reuniting them? That's a very good point. But let me make something else. Remember, by saying zero tolerance, read the letter from, I think, 70 or 100 uh, former U.S. attorneys, Republican and Democrat, who said that a zero tolerance policy for the misdemeanor of uh, illegal entry right. is diverting resources from people trafficking, from drug, drug mm-hmm. trafficking. So it's a, a really mistaken de- de- delivery of resources. Secondly, you're right, there is no uh, preparation uh, for the kind of processing that's necessary. And the fact that families should have been separated without proper documentation, some of the parents deported, shows you how low uh, we have sunk. And uh, I think it was Senator Ted Cruz, actually, who said you need more judges, you need more resources to actually run the um, a process of deciding whether or not someone uh, does qualify for asylum, because the test is, is it safe for them to, to go home? I lead a humanitarian organization. I think it's very important that we maintain the integrity of the refugee uh, process. To do that, I have to accept that those people who don't qualify as refugees, for whom it is safe to go home, they shouldn't stay. And to maintain the support for those who do qualify means that you have to run an efficient process mm-hmm. on that basis. And so then I think you mentioned earlier that, um, that your organization is in the process of reunifying reunifying families. From your perspective, um, well, one, how long does it take to reunify, say, uh, families, or particularly what I'm thinking of, a child with a well, family? I mean, look, the, the truth is that that question is how long is a piece of string? I mean, it depends on the uh, circumstances. It, if you've got family, a, a, a child who's in a separate refugee camp from a from their parent, well, they're both documented, you might both have their names, you can go through the proof of identity. If there is a family that flees from a, a war zone with no documentation at all, the uh, family gets separated, then it's much much harder and it can take a very long uh, time. So look, we run uh, support for refugees, for internally displaced and for host populations in 40 countries around the world that are producing the refugees. And we know family reunification is not just a legal obligation under international uh, law, it's also a moral necessity and it's also common sense that actually families who stay together are able to Uh, support each other. Secondly, it's absolutely vital that states that are hosting refugees are given proper support uh, to do so. The fact that there should be uh, 33% funding of UN appeals at this stage of the year shows that the humanitarian aid system is creaking under the weight. And the fact that the World Food Programme is having to reduce some of the rations it's giving to displaced people shows you how serious the situation is. The fact that malnutrition should be rising, that cholera should be on the loose in parts of 
of Yemen, where there is a war going on, shows you how international law is being breached, in, in, in the international laws of war are also being uh, breached. Thirdly, we also know from our uh, work that when humanitarian crises are not properly attended to, you end up with political crisis following. It's not just that political crisis causes humanitarian mm -hmm. crisis. Untended political crisis becomes a source of political instability. Look, there are um, massive demonstrations in Jordan three weeks ago, and the, the government was uh, replaced. Uh, that's related to the fact that Jordan feels that it's creaking under the pressure of dealing, not quite alone, but too much alone, with the refugees who've arrived from Syria. With an administration that has taken children from as young as babies to as old as, as teenagers, where one of the parents may have been deported, and now these children, uh, and I'm talking about the ones before the, the 2000 or so, who they may never be reunited with with their families. And what I was trying to get from you is that on average, how long does it take if all the systems are working efficiently, how long does it take uh, to reunite a, a, yeah, a family? I haven't got a but, good answer to that. I'm going to have to post an answer after, <laughs> on the, onto social media. I can find you some averages from different parts of the uh, world. The, uh, but it's not unreasonable to think that a lot of these, a lot of these children may never well, I see think, their families. I mean, that's again. a that's a that's a huge thing to say. I mean, I I think that you'd want that to be the extreme minority because this look, this is one of the richest countries in the world. It's an advanced uh, bureaucracy. It must be able to know uh, who, what are the names of people, what's their identifying marks. We're now in a world where not just fingerprints but uh, iris scans. It's not beyond the wit of uh, an efficient government and a humane government to keep families together. In fact, it's a it's a moral and legal. Uh, requirement and sorry no 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 keep going and then I want to uh, well you see better. several times you've mentioned it's a moral and legal legal requirement and we're dealing with an administration that challenges the legal question all the time to the point where um, the attorney general has called into question uh, the criteria for people seeking asylum um, but then you have a situation where the moral question, the morality of what's happening, there doesn't seem to be a moral anything when it comes to the consideration of, of these policies. I interviewed Jay Johnson yeah. for the podcast, the former Department of Homeland Security secretary, and knowing him and the Obama administration, you know when they dealt with the crisis in 2014, they put all the options on the table because that's what they do in terms of running in a, a bureaucracy and an efficient government. But then the moral question kicked in. And when it came to separating children from their, from their parents, it, 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 there was no question that that was that that was taken. Let off. me offer a reflection as someone who lives and works in the uh, U.S. has seen both the backlash and the backlash against the backlash. Because <laughs> for every American who says I'm, I'm I'm fearful of refugees, there's another American who says, "Hang on, that's my workmate, that's my family, that's my neighbour." Uh, and here's a reflection: the legalization of a lot of these questions, the the drive to contest them legally. We've just had the Supreme Court ruling on the so-called travel ban. And the ban. travel ban, I'm going to ask you now, about that in a moment. Now, yeah. just because something's constitutional doesn't make it right. And I think it's really important that 
we don't fall for the argument that because something's lawful, that means it should be done. Now, our concern with the quote-unquote travel ban has always been that, first of all, it was it was unnecessary because the vetting for refugees is tougher than any other route uh, to get uh, to the uh, US. Secondly, it's uh, critical that we don't fall for the argument that refugees are a burden on American society. They're actually net contributors mm. to American society, both in terms of the taxes they pay, the people they employ, uh, the uh, contribution uh, that they make, small and uh, large. And finally, there's also the, the element that America can induce other countries to do the right thing just as when it does the wrong thing, it can induce them to do the wrong thing. In 2016, we had our quarrels with the Obama administration. We thought they didn't step up enough. But when they stepped up on refugee entry into the US, increasing to 110,000, the number of refugees who are allowed into the US, there was a 30% increase in the number of refugee slots being offered by other countries. Mm. And the fact that today we're in a situation where the Trump administration should have promised 45,000 refugees entry, but is only delivering 21,000 this fiscal year, in a situation where 50,000 Iraqis worked for your government, either in the military or in uh, diplo for, diplo for diplomacy, for diplomats in the State Department, as translators, as other support staff, 50,000 Iraqis should have said, we need to come to America because we're not safe in Iraq. And only 36 should have been allowed in since October the 1st last wow. year. That tells you there's a negative signal being sent. And I think it's important that we call it out as being against America's values the moral point, but also against America's interests. So then that gets to to my question. Since we've we've dealt with the tra with the travel ban, so then I can ask you this larger question. And again, as your um, you know, to put your hat back on as you know the the chief diplomat for for Great Britain, um, the liberal democratic order, the United States was, you know. A, a country that helped create it, uh, that helped maintain it through through its leadership. What does it mean when now there's a president of the United States who has a rather cozy relationship with dictators, strong men, who calls into question the usefulness and necessity of NATO, uh, who has a an uncomfortably close, seemingly close relationship with the, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin? So I, I think it's a really important question because the West is not just a geographic concept, it's a political concept. It was born in 1941 when Churchill met Roosevelt in Newfoundland, four months before the US entered the war. They issued the Atlantic Charter, which was described by Joschka Fischer, the former German foreign minister, as the birth certificate of the West. And it was the birth certificate of the West because it wasn't about how to win the war, it was about how to learn the lessons of the post-World War I period and build an international order that was able to sustain cooperation rather than conflict between nations. Now, if you'll ex excuse the slightly extended um, essay answer, what was the liberal international order? It was liberal because it was founded on human rights as well as state sovereignty. It was international because it applied to all countries, not just democratic market economies. It was signed up to by communists as well as capitalists, by dictatorships as well as democracies. And thirdly, it was an order because it mediated the conflicts that can arise between countries. And I'm not going to say the Cold War was an easy period at all. There were awful mm -hmm. conflicts during the Cold War. But the international order, the order element, uh, kept relations between states, sometimes on very thin ice, but eventually kept those relations between states into an orderly way. Uh, the danger 
of the apex of the system, which is US commitment stepping away, is obviously that you lose the liberal bit, the international bit, and the order uh, bit. And it's chilling for me to hear other people describe the G7, the group of leading uh, democratic market economies, as the G6 plus one. That's the end of the West if we end up with the uh, G6 plus one. And I'm not someone who believes in Western values over other people's values. I think that the values that of human rights and human dignity, uh, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience that have been propagated from the West are universal values, not Western values. And their strength came from the, their, their application to all 193 members of the UN who signed the UN Charter, not just some of them. Some of them um, follow those rules um, in the breach rather than in the observance. But uh, there is grave danger if those countries that are willing to stand by those principles step away from them, because nature abhors a vacuum, and we will see mm-hmm. a return to some of the interwar competition that was so dangerous after the First World War. And that gets to the the question I was going to ask you: Can the liberal international order, international liberal order, survive without the leadership of the U.S.? Well, here's the um, here, here's the sixty-four billion dollar question. At one level, the answer is obviously no. Because if the US steps away, it gives license for all sorts of other people to step away. And I say this with some bitterness because, you know, look, six of our IRC hospitals in Syria were bombed last year. They weren't bombed by the Americans. They were bombed by the Assad regime and supported by the the Russians. We can't return to a world where bombing humanitarian aid hospitals is the uh, becomes uh, the norm. Now, here's the other side of the equation. There are a lot of countries, including emerging and very big ones, who have uh, commitments to the international order, if not its liberal elements. So it's very interesting if you listen uh, and read what the Chinese leadership are saying at the moment. They're saying they still believe in a world of win-win solutions, not a zero-sum hmm. world. They're still saying they believe in a multilateral order. And so my answer to your question, I think, is you know, is the inter- liberal international order dead? No. Uh, is it under threat? Yes. Is it under threat from without as well as within? Yes. Uh, does it need to be fought for? Yes. Bec- and that puts a huge responsibility uh, not just on governments, but NGOs and corporations. Because I think that at a time when governments are in retreat, NGOs and corporates need to step up. And that's the kind of situation we're in at the moment. Can the United States regain the status and the standing it's lost? Well, uh, I don't want to give a glib answer to that because the world's changing. We can't go back to the post-1945 period. The distribution of economic power in the world is wholly different than it was uh, then. Instead of the West accounting for 60 or 70 percent of global income, it now accounts for a third of global income. So we're in a different, uh, what must be more than a third. I haven't got those stats right. Uh, I'll check those. But we've got a a redistribution of economic uh, power around the world. But the ability of the United States and its um, allies in the democratic world, which aren't just in Europe, um, you know, the world's largest democracy is India. The world's largest Muslim-majority country is Indonesia. Uh, can the democratic world assert the uh, supremacy of the human rights that are at the core foundation of the new international order that was built after World War II? I would argue yes, because if you tell yourself no, then really we're in the descent to hell, and that's very dangerous. David Miliband, president of the International Rescue Committee, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Really pleased to do it. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. 
I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.